The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Don't think of this as a loss of identity. Think of this as an upgrade to a better way of life. Better services, better schools, better tax base. This merger... Oh, enough! Agrestic and Majestic are never going to merge. I told him about your deal with Celia. Where are our houses? Yeah, yeah, where are ours? I was more than generous with all of you. All right, let's get an idea how the vote's going to go. i got to get home for are you smarter than a fifth grader. All those in favor of a town merger with Majestic, say aye. Aye. All those against? Nay. Nay. Oh, the nays have it. Up your ass, Groff. Friends, this is a colossal mistake. Think of the people you represent. The votes aren't there. Nothing more to say. Find yourself another town to swallow. Celia can help you. She's good at that. All right, not so fast, fourth grader. There is a way to bypass the city council on this issue. If it's put to a referendum, the town can decide. Referendum. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 15, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where we have two new guests joining us for their first outing on Just Right. And they hail all the way from British Columbia. One of them is Chris Graham who is a current municipal councillor in Central Saanich, BC. How are you doing, Chris? Welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And joining you as well is Melissa Haley, who is a former councillor of Sydney, BC. And welcome to the show as well, <laughs> Melissa. Thanks for having me. And you're both here because in Ontario, we've in, in Ottawa particularly, there was just the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference which you both participated in, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. But first, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, how are you finding Ontario? <laughs> Is it uh, very, very different, different you... laws? Like uh, the liquor stores and that seem oh. to be a lot more restrictive <laughs> than BC, and you do not have your selection, and not as many craft breweries. Well, the weather has been great. I've really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tours, actually speaking on what Melissa uh, mentioned, which I found fascinating, was went to a. Um, a vineyard where they have to, because the winters are so cold, they they literally have to bury their vines for the winter and then dig so them up again in the spring. And they have another vineyard that they they've got two two spots. One they they've planted with with varieties of grapes that can withstand the cold, and they don't have to go to this extra extra length. But these grapes um, are not VQA approved. <laughs> Yeah, they're not VQA approved, so they can't sell them in the liquor stores, and they can't sell them at the fairs. And if they were to sell them at a restaurant, they'd be subject to a higher tax rate. So they're they're forcing them to to go with this sort of a, a grape that really is inappropriate for the climate. Well, liquor laws in Ontario are probably the most communistic in the world, if you <laughs> ask me, because I've been down to to um, for example the Brugal Distillery in uh, Dominican. 
And I talked to the people there, and they wonder, you know, okay, well, how's liquor in Ontario? And I said, well, the state controls all distribution of alcohol in the province of Ontario, and they just like their jaws drop because this is unheard of in basically the rest of the world. In Japan, you can buy beer at vending machines on the street. You know, good beer, too. Mm-hmm. And in B.C., last time I was there, well, I think it was last year, um, in the Okanagan, uh, you've got a, a dual system there, private and then as a, as a government one as well. And, and mm-hmm. I walked into there, and there's lots of different um, wines to choose from that you can't get here because of the, the laws. So let's start off by saying that you both sort of lean libertarian in your politics, conservative, libertarian, fiscal responsibility, that kind of a thing. So what are your thoughts then about an, an interesting observation that you, you pick liquor laws yeah, as the I first thing? Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, okay, what was your motivation for running for municipal? <laughs> <laughs> well, it has definitely, uh, definitely been exposed to a lot of drinking being on council. <laughs> <but> <laughs> the occupational hazard for yeah. politicians is alcoholism. Yeah, ironically, Melissa, my other half, she doesn't drink at all. So um, <laughs> I'm, I guess I've, I've been a bit spoiled So, so, so you, met, you met through your, pol- your political activities, did you? Yes. yes. So one of the mayors, uh, Frank Leonard of Saanich, thought it would be cute to get the two youngest people in the room together well, and set us up, and somehow it worked. Yeah, that <laughs> so was you're a true municipal. No, you've just quickly to get a few things out of the way. You've come here for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference. What is that all about? Like, what happens at those conferences? You meet with other people from all across the country. That's the idea. Yes. Uh, uh, all in municipal politics. Yes. It also gives us some access to federal government. Uh, some of the MPs are there. You get the leaders of the par- political parties speaking there as well. And part of it is, is, is networking, the opportunity to hear how other people have dealt with similar problems. But the other aspect that I found quite useful to are the study tours and, and just uh, I would call it professional development opportunities. Are, are there any kind of like motions or anything taken that's official at all, or is it pretty well uh, networking and... There are the resolutions, but... Well, the, the interesting thing about these sessions is that there's so many other, there's so many things going on at the same time, because you're, what was it, this one they had over 3,000 delegates registered, so you're not getting a lot of opportunity where everybody is in one place mm-hmm. doing one thing. So the people who want uh, a tour or they want to get uh, some some professional development like um, an educational forum or they want to go and they want to sit into resolutions and vote, there, there's, there's, so there's different aspects all the way through. So it kind of depends on the type, what you want to get out of the, out of the conference. You know, I've always wondered if these conferences were part of the reason that more and more we find municipalities across the country looking more and more the same because the people are meeting and doing a lot of the same things in each of the municipalities or am I reading that completely wrong? Well, I won't necessarily disagree with that. I'm not sure that could have a factor to yeah. it. But uh, there's a couple things, uh, some very different regions. I'd say BC is a very, British Columbia is a very different region from the rest of Canada and that it hasn't gone through the amalgamations that that I'd say most of the other provinces have. So, for instance, um, I'm I'm a I often have to introduce myself as a councillor from Victoria, or, or I mentioned we have Butchart Gardens in our municipality to identify mm-hmm. the location. But yeah, there's no real distinction between Victoria and Central Saanich. And that's right. There's you know, it's just also if you're driving suburbia. if you're driving through, you wouldn't really notice it. No, no. no. But uh, Greater Victoria has 13 municipalities. Um, Vancouver. Greater Vancouver has 26. Whereas we were speaking to the mayor of Toronto. Actually, I had a good John discussion. Murray. Yeah, I had a good discussion. 
Um, Melissa and and uh, him have, have have some similar interests in horses. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that that's a municipality of three point eight mm-hmm. million. Yeah. And just one municipality. So you could almost carve it off as a city state, really, as opposed to a municipality. Something. Well, a lot of Ontarians have been w- wishing they would do that with Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, separate. (laughs) Yes, because it really does not reflect. The demographics of Toronto does not reflect the rest of the the country or the rest of Ontario, for that matter. As a matter of fact, the reason why we have such a socialist government in Ontario under Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals and preceding him, McGuinty, is because they get the 416 vote, which is Mm -hmm. the area code in Toronto. Toronto votes liberal all the time. Outside of Toronto votes conservative all the time. You know, that's why I always have a liberal government here, mm-hmm. is because to placate all of the, um, the Toronto, the, the, the Toronto demographic. demographic. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of Canadian politics is driven in Toronto as well. And it's really not reflective of Newfoundland, of Quebec, of BC, of Alberta. These places are marginalized by the fact that Toronto is so politically powerful. And we, even BC, I'd say, definitely has a... It has, it's, it's almost two provinces in ideology. You've got, um, you've got the coast... Vancouver Island and the coast, which tends to be uh, say fairly left-wing, uh, yeah, NDP support. And then you've got the rest of the province, which is quite liberal. So it's it's interesting how you really could ca- carve them off into two regions. No, no, just to let other people know in the country, liberal out in B.C. means more like what we call conservative here. That's right, that, yes. right? Yes. So <laughs> you don't have a conservative party to speak of. Then. Well, historically, there hasn't been room. Technically, for... there is, but they haven't yes. been elected. No, well, historically, there hasn't. There isn't the political space in B.C. for more than two parties, if that makes sense. But you just um, had the liberals almost unseated by a merger between the NDP and the Green, who both hold right. seats in your... Uh, provincial parliament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is three. Well, to put it in perspective, because I remember the uh, vaguely the elections, uh, there used to be the social credit, which really is the yeah. old conservative leaning. That's what reform was born out of, social credit. And then the liberals came out. They, they, they got cracked through and got seats. And it wasn't long after that the uh, social credit died. I, I'm not sure how, how the Green and the NDP relationship in the long run is going to survive. BC's not a not really... It's hard to see a, see three parties in that province in the lo- over the long over the long haul. So you must feel like outsiders on the left coast <laughs> as libertarian leaning. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people even on the I, I can understand some of the environmental aspects around the Green Party that makes sense to me. But well, the left coast there's a lot of government employment, and that's so people tend to support more government for I think largely for that reason. Do you find an ideological uh, uh, spillover from the fact that you're probably in reception area of Seattle as well? I mean, you're only Mm -hmm. more or less a stone's throw Mm -hmm. from uh, the United States. You can probably see it on a clear day. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. So is there any ideological spillover to um, BC from American attitudes and politics and ideologies? Well, I'm sure there there are. I can't think of an example. I think maybe uh, you too might be. Because they they can be, I mean, to a Canadian, Americans can be very libertarian-oriented. They do speak mm-hmm. of liberty quite often and the rights of the individual versus the collective. Um, but it's interesting, and, and this would be a good example of where I'm thinking. I, I, I like the concept of smaller government, and, and definitely in the U.S. You look at Democrats or Republicans, and... Uh, 
you, you associate Republicans with with right wing, but it isn't, in my view, really, because the, because you look at some of the biggest deficits have actually been run up under Republicans. They both want to increase spending. They just want to increase spending in different directions. I wouldn't say either of those parties generally represent less government. No, no, and we would agree with you. Republicans are actually worse. They're, we've called the conservatives here in Ontario and in Canada the worst when it comes to federal spending and mm-hmm. programs. The conservatives in Ontario brought in our state-run health care insurance, OHIP, and have brought in most of the social programs we have here. They're yeah. all brought in by conservatives. So it's it's a really strange political spectrum. Yeah, when but you they never it. get the quote unquote credit for it. Although <laughs> 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 I don't know if they want that kind of credit. <laughs> One thing I, I did want to say that I found interesting. Back to your earlier question that sort of opened it up about or op- what is it making municipalities the same? One example that I found really fascinating is in Alberta. It's they're transitioning away from it, but but some of the older municipalities and, and rural municipalities have this concept where you only elect councillors, and then the councillors select their mayor. I think it would be a good one to look at adopting across the country. I see two benefits to it. One is you're not eliminating your star councillors because your star councillors run for mayor, so those ones get knocked off. Star maybe isn't the best word. Maybe experienced councillors. So your most experienced, capable councillors are the ones that get knocked off if they don't get the the mayor's seat. The second reason for it would be that it provides a check. Because I'm hearing, for instance, uh, about there's some issues with possibly the the mayor in London, Ontario. I don't know enough about it, but I've heard there's some grumbling there. But every year that comes up amongst council to select who is going to be the mayor, who is going to be the deputy mayor, if you're not reflecting what the, the, the values of council or the public's complaining, that provides a, na- a natural check to replace that person with somebody who could perhaps do a better job. I do wish you'd let me drive, Jim. I'm driving perfectly safely. We do have to get home before dawn. Good evening, Kinsable. Can I see your license, sir? Yes, certainly. Aren't you Mr. Jim Hacker? Yes, that's right. What's seems to be the trouble? Any reason you were driving so slowly? Well, I didn't want the curb to hit. I didn't want to hit the curb. But look, I've got a silver badge somewhere. I see. Perhaps you'd like Constable Evans to drive you the rest of the way. Oh, no, it's all right, officer. I'll drive. All right, Mrs. Hacker. If you're in a proper state to drive. Oh, I don't drink, officer. Well, not when my husband's driving. Trees, for example. Trees have different shapes. Trees have different performances. There is a tree, for example, that was planted in downtown Fort Worth, which is perfect. It's a perfect tree. It loves. But you know what? The birds love it. And so they shit on all the cars. And so no one parks. Okay. Now, that should be in the code. I'm talking about something completely humanist, like that tree, which you would write here, I don't know what the species is. Don't do that in urbanism. You know, and then there are other trees that break up the concrete, and other trees that can't take root pressure, and other trees that if you put them in T6, the branches will bang into the signs and upset the merchants. 
You know, and right now, how are trees selected? By landscape architects or, or others who do it? Oh, decoration. They're like decorators. Oh, what a nice, I love that tree. I simply adore that shrub. You know, because there's no criteria. Everybody has become a decorator. Everybody has become a pseudo artist because there is no criteria for designing things. You know, and all they know is, well, not only do I adore it, but it won't die. And that's the two criteria for establishing landscaping. We're in studio with Chris Graham and Melissa Haley, who have experience in British Columbia municipal politics. And one of the things that uh, I haven't got around to asking you yet that I always ask our municipal guests that we have on the show is, do you regard the municipality as a government or as a business? For example, here in London, Ontario, if we make our taxes payable to the city, it's to the corporation of the city of London. And that is a corporation. It's a business uh, incorporated body. On the other hand, it behaves very much like a government and has powers of the use of force and law. Um, how do you generally look at, or how do you think most of your compatriots look at municipal government? As a business, as, a, as, a, as government, or as some hybrid between the two? I would definitely say uh, government. I, I yeah. don't think I don't think there really should be any role of municipalities in business. And I, I often hear people suggest, well, why doesn't the municipality go into this to make money this way? And I don't think that's the role of of, of government. And I and also we're not profit oriented. I'm self employed, so mm -hmm. it's profit oriented in model. And uh, heck, just being self-employed, you struggle enough. And, and government, though, without any sort of uh, profit motive, uh, would just result in a lot of waste if we start thinking of ourselves as a business. But even so, like things like roadworks and um, those municipal property issues, which are really the property of the city, if we could get down to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like the roads out there are accessible to the public, but they're owned by the corporation of the city of London. And that's natural to me. I don't see anything wrong with that per se. But in that respect, you would think that the city would be a business with regard to operating its own, its own assets. Mm -hmm. When it comes to regulating others, then maybe it gets more like a government. Would that be a distinction at all? Or uh, well, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, um, you know, I that, guess uh, I, I guess I would look at the theory that um, natural monopolies is probably one of the few areas that you can justify government ownership. And roads would be an example of a natural monopoly where it doesn't make sense to run another set of roads or have private yeah. roads competing against each other. And there's positive externalities for having those roads. In general, I think we should, ha we should have minimum or minimal government. But at the same time, there are places where government's necessary. And I think roads, sewer, water, I can see where those play a role. Mind you, it could just be that I've been on council for so long that I've had those ideas indoctrinated into, my, into me. But <laughs> He was first elected when he was 18 years old. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's remarkable. So well, let's get into that. What, what motivated you to run at that age? What was it that was, that was uh, bugging you maybe about mm -hmm. politics that got you involved? Well, I, I guess there is a number of things uh, that I can recall. I used to be on the junior national team for rowing, uh, but I was just sort of too small to really think about going forward with that, and I didn't really want to, it's sort of a, a difficult spot to be in when you're a bit, you know, too, and a, and a little bit too big to be a lightweight, too mm -hmm. small to be a, a really a heavyweight for, for rowing. 
Uh, had some great experiences with it, though. So you uh, ran for council. <laughs> a logical well, sort choice. Sort of, but it's, it's, I, I, when, I, when, I, when I gave up rowing, I found I had a huge amount of time on my hands from what I had before. And uh, I was terrified of public speaking and wanted to get over that. I also thought, and, and, this, is, and this is a perfect example, I, you know, when you're a kid, like especially when I, was, when I was 14, I think I had the answer to everything. <laughs> well, the younger you are, the, the, the simpler the world is, and you think you can go and contribute. You have something to contribute, and you can make things better and improve things. So I, I put my, my name forward, and, um, and back then in particular, it was very polarized in central Saanich, very much either pro-development that we, we build everything or else shut it down. And so it had just been, you know, one council, and I was running against the council I'd just been on, so that the entire previous council was, was removed, and, and, and that's how I was able to get elected back then, because I think generally an 18-year-old would, would struggle to get elected. Mm-hmm. But we, we had very polarized politics. So you, just did, it, you politics. just did it really, though, out of your own personal um, motivations, nothing externally political that was particularly bothering you. Is that right? I would say that's right. I mean, my, my family's always been um, sort of interested in in in, in activism and politics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, but that, that would be the reason. Yeah. And, and you, Melissa, what was your motivation um, when you first, when did you first get elected? I was first elected at 22. I was mm-hmm. the youngest female politician in Canada at that time. Wow, you you both did you set a record too? Or yes, at the time oh. I was. Uh, <laughs> We've since both been surpassed. Had uh. <laughs> our records taking. Um, what it was, it's uh, it's all my dad's fault. Him and I would um, after dinner, he'd have his beer, I'd have my pop or whatever, and we'd sit and discuss politics, philosophy, the meaning of life. Well. So I got really into debating, and then we moved back to Canada. I grew up in Dubai. And um, he started yelling at talk radio. (laughs) 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 So I kept telling him, stop yelling and go do something about it. Go run, get elected. And somehow I filled out the paperwork. So, so, so you got involved in politics. You were uh, yourself the youngest, and what, were there any issues at the at that time that were your motivators, or were you also um, just personally motivated to do something? Personally on a motivated, personal? and North Cowichan still is that way, but it is extremely left leaning and very wasteful. And I wanted to go in and make it a little more economic, and uh, yeah. That didn't quite work out. <laughs> <laughs> who have uh, who have been your influences politically and philosophically, ideologically? Well, I guess for myself, probably the first mayor, Wayne Hunter, for Central Senate, played an important role in just seeing how he he was doing, carrying on business and his his ideas. And the influences, I don't think, are provincial or federal. It's just more. The experiences I, the people I've worked with over the years I found uh, insightful. Now you you were talking just a little bit earlier and during our break about how different politics is organized in British Columbia than it would be here in Ontario and and you you said that uh, when you when you ran you are a candidate at large you're, that's you correct. don't run mm-hmm. for specific wards that's right so in our so how how is that done because I think a lot of Ontarians might not understand the process when you say that yes yeah, so it's it's basically we well we cover the same region of course as the mayor does so it, it's so you have there. a multi plurality do you do you have number of candidates in a given district is that exactly how so there's um 
Well, number of seats available is how okay. it looks. So, so on your ballot, you get to vote for, in Central Sanchez is a good example. So we've got 18,000 constituents approximately, a little bit more than that. And when they go to vote, they will see on there the, a selection for mayor. And then underneath that, they'll see a selection for council. And all the names will be listed. And they can pick up to six when they vote. Is is that like a ranked ballot type of thing? Or is no, you just, put you just six put six names. X's. Okay. Yeah. Up to. You can uh, vote for less. So which of those votes is counted? All of them? All, All of them. them. Wow, that's a different system. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Um, yeah, and it's it's really fascinating. Some of the larger municipalities, like you look at the uh, city of Vancouver, where they've got, I believe, twelve councillors running at large with six hundred thousand constituents. You were also talking about councillors voting for a mayor. That's yes, in Alberta. Yeah, yeah, that's in Alberta, and and how does that work? You're you're saying what they don't do there is the citizens don't vote directly for the mayor. The That's right. Pick it's almost like choosing the president of the United States or even, even the prime minister of Canada. You yeah. don't vote for PM mm-hmm. or necessarily president. You vote for the college. electoral college in the states and here you vote for party and yeah. members of parliament. So basically in, in Alberta, I, my understanding is that they're phasing that system out, which I think is unfortunate, but definitely in, in some of the older municipalities in rural Alberta, they've got a system in place where you would vote for, in, in their case, up to if it was like Central Saanich, instead of having a mayor, there'd simply be seven, you'd have seven votes. Uh, you could vote up to seven spots, and the top top vote-getters would get elected to those seven seats. And then with their first order of business would be to select who is going to represent them for that first year. I think often it's probably the top vote-getter for that first year, but it, but it provides, a, provides a natural check on, on their, for their system, if if the mayor isn't working out, if he's not chairing the council, uh, the council meetings well, or if or if there's or if there's issues with the public and how the mayor is interacting, every year they can revisit and select a new mayor and a new deputy mayor. Well, that's an interesting thing. How, how do the citizens go for that? I don't know if London citizens would go for that. Not you know, not being able to vote for their mayor as much as they might not like the current <laughs> mayor right now. But you know, in London, we were the last city to abandon what we call boards of control. And that was an extra body of um, uh, well controllers who had who are also elected municipally wide, and we how many were on board? Four, and they s- basically set the budget and brought it to yeah. council for. Approval. And they were the check against the city council. And ever since our city council got rid of the board of control, costs have just skyrocketed, and we're getting into things like bus rapid transit for a city this size. They want to spend half a billion to a billion dollars Ontario on. has become less and less democratic in the sense of the choices that individuals can make regarding their city councils. I mean, a number of years ago, back in the 80s and that, um, we were elected, uh, councillors were elected every two years. And then the NDP got in, made it every three years. And then the Liberals got in, made it every four years. So you had less and less opportunity to kick the bums out, so to speak. And then they got rid of the PUC, which was another body that helped with the, uh, the utilities. And then they got rid of the Board of Control, which set budget. And so now it's all the power of a municipality here in Ontario is vested in smaller and smaller numbers of people. And do you see that happening in BC? Well, we did go from three to four years. Well, we've actually gone. We've actually gone two to to four two over to time. Yeah, uh, the, and it, actually, originally in in BC, it used to be. Um, You'd have the balance of the council elected one year, and then you'd have 
the remaining councillors and mayor elected the following year. So you had two-year terms with uh, offset. So you'd have an election basically every year at the municipal level mm-hmm. historically. And that's now gone to uh, once every every four years. So um, you're suffering from the same sort of conglomeration of power and less demo- uh, de- uh, democratic choice for the populace? I, I suppose we are. Yeah, it, it's interesting too, though. It's uh, and I, and I, philosophically, how the 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 ward or at large system differs, especially. At, and I know some people use good arguments both ways. But um, if you're electing somebody from your ward, that person only represents that small region, technically. Well, we represent here uh, with wards, and I got elected on the school board in a ward system, mm-hmm. even though we did have that one time, Bob. That. Uh, um, during the transition between two different school boards, um, c- uh, the city of London had six seats open mm-hmm. and uh, 12 people ran and I got in. So it was very much like what you were saying at large mm-hmm. for the city of London. But we, um, we represent wards. We get elected by wards, but nobody has ever really thought or, or put a ward ahead of the city. I've never found that in London really, in council or on the board. It was almost an un- unwritten law that this is the way you're elected, however you represent, you, you do what's best for the city. Hmm. So I've never really found that a problem. Well, it's much good. like uh, political par- parties. There's no real political party system in municipal politics here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that that's not necessarily true in, in, this, in BC, though. Well, we've sort of seen it. We have also have regional government where the municipalities get together and uh, share services. <laughs> Granted, the municipalities on the peninsula already have their own sewage treatment thing but the other municipalities are dealing with sewage treatment in Victoria and it's not in my backyard not in my municipality yet this mm-hmm. thing would benefit the whole region mm-hmm. yeah no no Victoria the sewage sewage treatment in Victoria is um well it's an interesting one because there's an argument that perhaps they don't actually need it at all and it's Many billions. Of, <laughs> that would save a bit of money. There's a joke the there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there's a joke there somewhere. Well, let's pick up on that when we return. Well, will you tell me what happened, Ralph? He talked Marshall into giving him a job. A job with a bus company? Then why are you so upset? Because he's going to be my boss. <laughs> Your boss? That's right. If I live to be a hundred years old, I'll never forget tonight. I can hear every word Marshall said to him. Why, you'd be perfect for the job, Mr. Norton. My, that's a wonderful suggestion you made, Mr. Norton. Oh, Mr. Norton, I like a man who can stand and think on his feet. Norton works in a sewer. (laughs) He's got to stand on his feet to think. If he sat down, he'd drown. (laughs) Ralph, have you talked this over with Ed? I should say not. We came out of Marshall's house, I turned my back on him, and I walked right away from him. Well, Ralph, what makes you so sure he even wants the job? Maybe by this time he's thought it over and decided not to take it. After all, Ed's very happy at the sewer, and he's due for a promotion. Maybe you're right. He likes that job he's got. If he left the sewer, he'd be like a fish out of water. If let us say that we consider the currency to be complexity, 
Let's say complexity, diversity. Diversity is the great word. We want ecological diversity, we want social diversity, okay? Ecological diversity as, an, as a single currency diminishes as you go urban. Now, social diversity goes up as you go urban, right? There's no social diversity in the country. There's very little in suburbia. There's a great deal of social diversity at the core. This is where people of all types and all persuasions and all genders, all six genders and everything, seem to be happy, okay? There's a lot of diversity in the core. Lots of languages, lots of restaurants. Diversity is good. If we mix social and ecological diversity to, and, and natural diversity together, if we mix them both, in other words, we unify nature and society, if we, if we understand that man is not the adversary of nature, but in fact part of nature, and you measure human diversity, then the diagram corrects itself immediately. It's excellent at T1, which is nature, it drops in suburbia where there's neither natural nor social diversity and then it rises again in the core where there's very little natural diversity but a great deal of social diversity. You immediately correct the diagram. You see? So the philosophy which is bankrupt, the philosophy of nature-based environmentalism which is bankrupt and ultimately can never succeed because it includes human, every human is a problem. If you start analyzing the ecological impact of a human, you have to kill babies. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening convenience. We're in studio with um, Melissa Haley and Chris Graham, counselors from uh, Central Saanich in BC. Now, when I was, um, I actually sat in, when I was a trustee, um, I sat on a city hall committee called the Crime Prevention and Advisory Committee. Now, the reason I bring that up is because you're here in Ontario attending the Federation of um, Canadian Municipalities. And I remember back when I was on that committee, the Federation came out with a, a sort of a directive saying that in order to reduce crime, we should um, have pay equity laws. And I'm going, okay, I don't see the connection. You tell me how forcing a businessman to pay one person more, the uh, same amount of money as another person, even though that person may not be doing the same job, which is what pay equity really is, um, and fining possibly the, the, uh, the businessman $50,000 for not doing it, how that reduces crime. And the rationale, if you can follow the convoluted thinking of these left-wingers, um, was that, well, if a woman was paid more money, then she would have more opportunity to leave a bad relationship and she could support herself, therefore she wouldn't be on the streets prostituting and getting into crime and drugs and all that. And I'm thinking, okay, that's rather um, convoluted. Why not just uh, basically have a communist system where everybody makes the same amount of money? It, it, which went, it went off the rails, to tell you the truth. But that's what they're doing, though. <laughs> now, do you find that, was there anything out of the Federal, Federation of Canadian Municipalities that is of that kind of a thing? Here's a directive. We would like you to do this. But behind it all is a left-wing agenda, as in most, most things. Well, there's two parts to that question. I'm going to go to the first with the with the crime because I think that's an interesting one that people 
don't really look at closely. I think the easiest way to reduce crime is to reduce laws. The more laws there are, the more opportunity there is <laughs> to break them. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. It's a little more of a lengthier discussion involved in that, but I absolutely agree with you. It makes sense. Uh, and I guess from the second point, uh, I think you find, you'll find that municipalities tend to be fairly left-leaning. So they often, and this is, and this is uh, not, not really speaking to F, the FCM question, because I'm, I'm sure there's countless examples that, that would answer your question, but I can't think of one right now. But one that I've seen is when I was first elected back in the 90s, we were definitely focused more on, on providing infrastructure at, at affordable costs to our uh, constituents. That was the roads, water, the basic um, dealing with rezoning. Uh, municipalities have gone from that to being more social advocacy groups. Um, that, that transition I've seen where there's a, a role where they want us to get involved with climate change. Quite, They want us to get involved with... Um, social housing. Yeah, social housing. That's another one. They, they want to get us in... They, a myriad of, of social engineering projects that they yeah. want council to take an active position on. Um, and I, I think that is unfortunate. I don't think that's the, that should be the... I think that that's outside of our mandate. And... Uh, and that's uh, definitely been happening quite a bit. You think the mandate of a city councillor would be simply to provide the essential services that a city needs to run? Police, ambulance, roads, sewers, etc. Exactly. Mm-hmm. See, to me, that gets back to the business aspect well, of see, the Well, see, now, city, Bob, Bob right? and I have disagreed on this before. I'm of the opinion that a city council doesn't even come close to thinking like a business because it has the use of force, and it is not run on a profit motive. Business, by, by definition, is an endeavor that's run on the profit motive. So therefore, a, a city cannot be a business, should not be a business, and shouldn't even be thought of as being a business. And, and once you introduce force into the equation, which a city municipality has with their police departments, that's, that's not a business in no way, shape, or form. Also, taxation. It's not a voluntary. You're not voluntarily <laughs> paying for the service. <laughs> That's right. So I don't see how the, even the question comes up because I can, actually I do. Well, Though the word a, corporation just simply means body. A legal, it's a legal entity is a body. That's all corporation means, corporeal, right, body. It's so it they can sign contracts yes. and be liable for things. Yeah. You were going to ask something else? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, one of the burning issues in Toronto and Ontario right now is the booming housing market fueled um, mostly, by uh, people say, by the foreign ownership investing, uh, people from uh, overseas buying up property in Toronto and paying whatever, most of it's Middle Eastern money, and uh, they have very deep pockets, and it's driving up the prices so that the people born and raised in Toronto have children, they can't afford to live there anymore, and so they're moving out of the, uh, out of the city. Um, are you finding that in the greater Vancouver area? Well, Vancouver, um, Victoria, you're pretty much a millionaire if you own your own house. Yeah, the average pr- price of a residential pr- pr- uh, house in Toronto is $1.5 million. Um, here in London, it's probably in the $300,000 range. And what's it, what's it like out uh, your way? Yeah, it's around the million-dollar mark now for our region. And is that because of the huge Chinese influx in yes. the province? Yeah, that, that's, and, and they've tried to combat it with, uh, with uh, the... the foreign buyers tax in Vancouver, mm-hmm. which has pushed a lot of people out our way. Now, that's interesting because I'm just reading an article here from, uh, I guess it's a National Post from Gary Marr, and there's a, it says uh, millennials not writing off home ownership dream just yet, and they comment that Ontario's 
changes, which included a 15% tax on non-resident buyers, could cool the market as it did in British Columbia when that province imposed its own 15% tax on foreigners in the Vancouver area. Did it actually work? Well, it definitely slowed it down in Vancouver. It had a spillover to other parts because it's re- because of, you apply it regionally, so people invest elsewhere, so that it spilled over onto the um, onto the island, of course. So that was Vancouver tax. That was just a Vancouver, Vancouver tax. Oh, because here in Ontario, right. I believe it's province wide. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So, um, what is your solution to something like that? Do you agree with that tax of um, foreign ownership of residential property? No. No, I, I think it's a market-driven problem. It's a supply and demand issue as well. Um, not something people really like to think about, but it's not just always a bad thing, too. I, I get that it's a bad thing if you're trying to get into the market. But there are other things municipalities can do. We, we make it very difficult to build new housing. where There's a great deal of fees and regulations and restrictions around it. And um, I guess finding ways to, to balance that out and make make construction of housing a little easier. I wouldn't say a little cheaper because it's not really the cost. It is a supply, a market supply and demand. I don't think, and this is something that people have a have a struggle with conceptually. It's not just. It's not really the cost of building the house. It's how easy is it for more housing to come on online so that you can increase the supply. So it's mm-hmm. it's a classic classic supply and demand curve issue. I th- I think every elected official shall have to. Uh try and build their own house <laughs> through a municipality and jump through all the hoop. It's very easy to blame foreigners for any problem that you come across, especially when it's dealing with housing, which is so regulated in both provinces, mm-hmm. that rather than look at making it easier to build a house and to use your land out in the country for development or whatever, which is pretty much frozen here in Ontario, um, no, let's just blame the foreigners, tax them. It's interesting. We we, we, we were entertaining the opinions of Andre Stuani about municipal planning and in one of his presentations which he gave in Vancouver interestingly enough he pointed out how uh, the difference in the way um, zoning is done in the United States and in Canada in Canada it's much more of a negotiating British system kind of a negotiating system in the United States I'm, I'm just paraphrasing very quickly here it's more of a, a fixed rule fixed set of regulations regulations you for either each use them or you don't group in a zone right mm-hmm. so then builders know as long as they comply with the zoning regulations. They don't have to ask anybody else for any permissions unless they want to go outside that. And apparently that works out quicker and cheaper for this, for Americans. But he really blamed a lot of the American or the Canadian way of getting these approvals and, and things like that as being part of the cost of the high housing we have. Well, well, here's an interesting exa- way of looking at it that I've seen a transition for. I mean, we, we've... Um We've definitely been restrictive, and I'm not, not, I'm not, I'm still have mixed feelings as to as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think that there are advantages to sort of preserving some aspects because that's part of why people want to move there too, uh, of the community and uh, mm-hmm. not having it developed. But uh, but we've also moved from not just having simple zoning regulations. We've moved to then getting development permit areas. So you then not only do you need a a building permit, but you need a development permit. And it's gone not only from needing a development permit that you run through staff, but that you then have to actually go and get sign-off by council. So they're not, they're tweaking. What's the difference between a building and a development permit? So a building permit says what you roughly can build. A development permit makes sure that you're following all these different guidelines. And so they can force you to build what you're allowed to build the way they want it built. 
So it's sort of another check. So say you've got a building scheme and that you have to go to development permit to make sure the paint's right, that the that the garbage is being, you know, that the, there's trees around the garbage, so it's being where the parking is going to be because it, it'll say how the building the, the zoning might just say you need this amount of parking relative to this size of build of building the development permit gives them the opportunity to say well where is the parking going to actually be on the property and, and that kind of thing it's micromanaging yeah <laughs> that's a good word for it I, there's mm-hmm. a recent case here in london where, where a developer the old hospital uh, on south street was torn down and it's still in the process of being torn out. And this guy came along and says, hey, this is great. It's on the river. I'll build, you know, 20-story buildings, shops, malls, all this stuff right here on this land. And it would have been a great boon to the uh, central core. And the city council got in and said, no, we want you to do this. We don't want you to do that. And they actually got in micromanaged and saying it has to be this high. We want shops here. We want this developer here. And it becomes quite a, not necessarily criminally, criminally but certainly a corrupt uh, process of people who are elected to basically run the roads and sewers to um and now 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 we're telling people how to build buildings mm-hmm. you know and i i don't agree with that personally i mm-hmm. i think that it should be um on a civil basis you're putting up a 20-story building then the person next door who's living in the, on the property in a one level bungalow should be able to go to the municipal council and say Nope, this is going to encroach upon my right as a landowner to enjoy my property. And then they can say, yes, you're right, it will be. But that's an objective reason rather than the whims and the personal tastes of councillors. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen that firsthand, too, with, count, with, with some councillors going right to the what, what color of siding they think that building should have and, and trying to make what that business a, it a, a part of a rezoning. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> you either own private property and can develop it within... Uh, civil laws, or you don't. And I think that we've got a really corrupt system. Well, the other thing that people don't remember, because zoning is, is relatively new in a lot of areas, um, less than 100 years in most areas. In effect, all zoning is a down zoning. You can look at it that way because it's been imposed upon people who originally bought their property without any zoning restriction. Interesting. He has a family cottage that predates zoning. (laughs) Yeah, so he knows all about it. (laughs) First of all, Mr. Wilson, we would like to thank you for the T-shirts that you brought us from the 2001 Agrestic 5K Thanksgiving Fun Run. I chewed that logo, the turkey with the sneakers. That's quite a talent, Mr. Wilson. However, we're here to discuss the town of Agrestic's financial records, not funny T-shirts. Of course, Anne. May I call you Anne? I'm getting divorced. There seems to be an outstanding loan here, Councilman Doug, made to a company called Aguatecture. Yes, yes there is. And I have the repayment of that loan right here in my back pocket. This is a post-dated personal check. Yes, yes it is. This is all highly unorthodox, Mr. Wilson. Yes, yes it is. And you're claiming that this is repayment on the loan made to Aguatecture. Yes, yes it is. You see the memo line right there? It says for Aguatecture. It's a great little business, a socially responsible, minority-owned company that makes fountains shaped like houses, Victorians, Tudors, even castles. Heartwarming story. Hard scrabble, good people, invested with our hearts, and it paid off. They're selling like bratwurst in Germany. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, with the grace of the God, so be it, amen. Mm, mm, oh brother. Amen. My wife's a fountain freak. She'd love those. Yeah, where can I get one? I'll hook you all up. Fountains for everyone, at cost. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
the recent garbage strike in London was an ideal opportunity for the Freedom Party to demonstrate how its vision would work. Not content to be held hostage, as party officials put it, by City Hall and striking outside workers, the Freedom Party hired a truck and collected garbage from some neighborhoods. This is what we thought of as a, mo a constructive protest. It's a way of saying, well, listen, we don't feel that we should be blackmailed either by the city or by the union or by anybody about essential services. And yet rather than, you know, take petitions or protest or picket or something like that, we thought, what a better, what more constructive way of going about it than picking up people's garbage and showing that they don't have to say, well, we surrender. The Freedom Party is in favor of contracting out garbage collection to private enterprise to increase competition, reduce costs, and keep the taxpayer from being held hostage during labor disputes. Now, Melissa, you're a retired councillor, but right now you have a book project in, in the works. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, uh, Sussex Road. It's a political thriller. I've uh, taken some of my experience and, of course, Hollywoodized and drama it. And uh, what it's basically about is... Um, Jordan Innes, a female prime minister, her American husband, who gets her in trouble, and her aide, Davik Woods, who's always in trouble. He doesn't intend to be, but he always gets in trouble. And they're sort of adventures as political uh, elite. Have you uh, got a publisher yet? No, I'm working on self-publishing. I've got a couple... Um, companies in mind. Um, so we can expect it on Amazon, perhaps? In the future? <laughs> yeah, probably. Now, Sussex Road, is that a, um, a take on the fact that Sussex Drive is the Prime Minister's residence yes. here in Canada? Yes, and yeah, a lot of things. It's not and... a yellow brick road, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> how, long, um, how long has it been since you have been in council? Uh, when was the last election? Three years? Yeah, about two and a half years. Two and a half years. And and did you get voted out or did you uh, um, decide not to run again? Or? No, I did run, but there were a lot of retreads and there was a lot of money spent on campaigns. Mm -hmm. And I am the person who spends $200 and goes door knocking. I think you spent $20 and you came 100 votes short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, something, there's something to be That's cautious about when you see somebody spending, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars to get in a position that which pays pay tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. I'm going, there's something wrong here. Yeah. There's well, they have power and influence to start off with that maybe is worth the money to them. Yeah, I never liked really taking a lot of donations. You're not supposed to be beholden to anyone. When, when I was elected trustee, I spent $200. Yeah. Printed up my own pamphlets here in this office and went and knocked on every single door in the ward, and it yeah. got me elected. Yeah. Mind you, I had to do it twice. But then <laughs> <laughs> Still, you know, uh, that's the way to do it, if you ask me, because yeah. you're showing that, first of all, you're frugal with your money, mm -hmm. and you're taking the position seriously, and you're willing to work for it. And um, it doesn't look as if you're doing it for ulterior motives. Would you recommend it for anybody? Um, you've got to have a tough skin, mm. and... I'm a policy wonk, so I like to Google and understand the policies. And luckily, Sydney Council was like that for me. North Cowshan Council was personality politics, and I couldn't really figure that out and play that game. But if you want to make a change in your community and you're willing to put up with being the scapegoat and being called names, and no one likes you for what you do <laughs> for the community, 
Uh, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Is there nothing positive to say about the experience? <laughs> well, I've done things that I know future generations will build upon. Mm-hmm. I thought you really enjoyed your experience at Sydney Council, though. Sydney Council I loved because it was a bunch of policy wonks, and we'd actually sit there and discuss, well... This issue happened in this town in England, and this is how they dealt with it, and this was the outcome. How would this fit into our community? Which I really enjoyed because they were all focused on what is Seems best like a more for the community. Approach to, to, to governance. Yeah, but not all municipal councils are like that. A lot of North Cowishan, it was the mayor's ego. That's, and, that's interesting. Complete different cultures, aren't there, in different mm-hmm. municipalities? and uh, a different way of thinking. Now, how, how are you, have you been in council ever since you first got elected? Well, I did I did try to run for a mayor once. and, and that, Well, running for mayor didn't work out, let me put it that way. But yeah. it was an interesting situation because the mayor was, at the time, was very well liked. And in, the and, incumbent and, mayor. The incumbent mayor. And, and uh, um, I, I actually personally liked him quite a lot myself. And, and it's not even that he had bad ideas. It's just that he couldn't chair a meeting to save his life is driving <laughs> all of all of our council nuts and the f- five of the six of us are trying to figure out who was going to run against him because we just couldn't handle it anymore but the thing is we'd been at an experienced council and we were doing a good job of sort of covering up those deficiencies and i guess when it came to the election we did too good of a job of covering those deficiencies up because he's uh, re-elected so um, yeah that was my experience of, of, of sitting out of council um but yeah, I, I think overall it's been a pretty good experience. And if you want to give back to your community, it's a great way to give back to your community. Excellent. And, and I'm just wondering if you had any of the same issues out there municipally as we do here. Um, well, here in London, we have, of course, uh, the current big issue that's on city council's agenda is the future of bus rapid transit, which is a huge issue. Is that a big issue out there, rapid transit, or you're pretty well settled in with what you have in your area or are these pending issues? We're not looking at any huge projects coming up. I know Vancouver always is because they're dealing with much they're dealing with a population base that can perhaps afford it. Oh, yeah. But in our, our situation we're looking we're just looking at a at just the bus route. We don't have that population base to I think to to necessarily justify it. Well, this is our problem here in London. Well, we don't either. We don't <laughs> yeah. either, right? And, and we're not a city of even a, a half a million yet, let alone the millions that are required for some of these Yes, projects. count yourself lucky that you don't have what we call here legacy projects, which are basically councillors and administrators with huge egos who want to leave office by saying that I built that, even though the city doesn't want it or need it and can't afford it. So count yourself lucky that you've got no big projects. <laughs> have you had any uh, any proposals out in your area like we have here in Ontario? Um, municipalities declaring themselves sanctuary cities for uh, illegal immigrants coming north of the border from the states and elsewhere. <laughs> Not That's yet. An issue here. No. Not yet. Not oh, yet. well, we won't mention that one. What would you say are the big issues out there? I mean, um, do you have many referendums? Your roads, tourism has got to be a big issue out there. And um, well, the last election, though it wasn't borne out by the by the candidates that got elected, but the last election amalgamation was a very big issue. As I've indicated, we've got 13 municipalities for our area. There are pluses and and minuses to that. One is that you get the opportunity for residents to some degree self-select because municipal municipal cultures and and how we do things are are very 
different. If you want a place where you can get something, you know, get something approved very quickly, you'd, you'd look at Langford. And then that, that's an interesting example where this, most of the municipal staff is contracted out, where Central Saanich is uh, one of the last non-unionized municipalities. So you get quite a, a variance of service levels. We don't provide any garbage pickup, for instance, and most of the municipalities around us do. Oh, so private? All private. And in fact, Langford has... Imagine that. It actually yeah. works. And in fact, what we do is that people can make their own arrangements. There's several different garbage providers, and, and it's, for most people, it's quite effective. Um, in Langford, they actually contract out to one garbage provider, <laughs> which is also... Pro- I will, yeah. Yeah. Melissa's giggling, but we will we'll stay away from that. <laughs> you know, this is actually fascinating because I've always been of the opinion that from a freedom perspective, and Bob and I are always about freedom, personal individual freedom, and uh, private property rights and all of that, and fiscal responsibility. And I've always thought that, look, the arguments against privatizing something have always never washed with us because we can go to a community, for example, yours, and say that, look, here, private garbage pickup. It works. And all I have to do is just look around and find out for every issue there's a good private alternative. And I think mm-hmm. that perhaps mm-hmm. your garbage pickup might be one of them. Yeah. There's actually a number of studies that support that private garbage pickup is cheaper per capita. That would make sense. Do you, ha- do you also have the issue out there? We've only got a few minutes left just to <laughs> hit some big issues. Uh, how's Uber hitting the, 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 the scene out there? Is it, is it ex- mm-hmm. Not allowed yet. Not allowed. Interesting. I think it was not on allowed. their not campaign. Not Sorry. To allow Uber. It's not allowed yet. Not allowed. Oh, not allowed. Okay. Not allowed. The province doesn't allow it, is, is my understanding currently. No, that's oh. interesting. So you still have like taxi monopolies. Yes. And, yeah. That's the big issue well, in uh, London here. Yeah, and I find it a crazy system when you when you want to con- encourage people not to drink and drive, and then you restrict public, you restrict yeah. access to trans to transportation. It, it doesn't make any sense in my mind. Yeah, here's another comparative issue. Yeah, with licensing of taxi cabs, fifty thousand dollars to get a license to run a taxi, a taxi corporation, company in the in the city or something like that. When if you can go to other countries, anybody can basically be a taxi driver. Yeah. Well, what really irritates me because I do people's, uh, I'm accountant and do people's taxes, uh, and I've got a friend who's a taxi driver. You can see very clearly the taxi license is is simply rent-seeking. The people who have the licenses, by and large, are not the people who drive the taxis. They hire people to drive the taxis who make just over a minimum wage relative to them who who just get a a rent off of it. Yeah, the medallion becomes a commodity, which they then Mm -hmm. buy and sell. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's what I really enjoy. It's like the supply management system. Yeah, supply management systems. Uh, you don't want to get me started on that. Supply management <laughs> system for uh, agriculture, well, for instance. It's mm-hmm. a, that that would be similar. a whole other topic. Uh, Chris Graham and Melissa Haley, thank you for joining us today. And I hope uh, maybe next time you make a visit to this part of the province, you might join us again for uh, another update. It's interesting to hear how municipal politics is done elsewhere in the country because it's something we always like to hear about. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Okay, whose cars are these? Let's move them. Let's go. Uh, officer, can I just explain something to you? Hey, let's go. I'm gonna write both of you a ticket in about two minutes. But officer, he, he can't pull in head first. Officer, he backed up from down the street. He was double parked. He was sitting there.
All right, you move your car. It's your space. You can't go in head first. Wait a second. Why can't he go in head first? He said the guy was just sitting over there. What are you talking about? This guy was there first. But he didn't take it. Hey, it's his space. No, it's his space. Wait. 